Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Opioid-induced constipation, often referred to as OYC, is the most common adverse effect of opioid therapy, occurring in 40 to 80% of patients receiving opioids. Because OIC differs from other forms of constipation due to opioids acting on the dense network of mu opioid receptors in the enteric system, treatment with laxative products, bowel regimens, and dietary changes may have limited efficacy in preventing it. Today, Dr. Daniel Hess discusses new and improved treatment options, including peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists designed to reverse OIC without compromising opioid analgesic effects. Opioid-induced constipation, or OIC, is the most common adverse event associated with opioid therapy, as it occurs in 40 to 80% of patients receiving opioids. With 4 to 5% of the U.S. population receiving opioids for chronic pain, 9 to 12 million patients are at risk for developing opioid-induced constipation. And because OIC differs from other forms of constipation due to opioids working on the dense network of mu opioid receptors within the enteric nervous system, laxative products, bowel regimens, and dietary changes can have limited efficacy in preventing OIC. Therefore, with the need for treatment options, Pomoras, or peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists represent a novel class of drugs that were designed to reverse OIC without compromising opioid analgesic effects. For the objectives of my presentation, I will describe the pathophysiology of OIC. We will also dive into the primary literature for the safety and efficacy for the Pomora agents. And finally, I will provide a review of clinical pearls for each of the Pomoras that can be applied to patient care. Opioids are among the most commonly prescribed and potent analgesics for both acute and chronic pain. Among the most bothersome side effects associated with opioid therapy is opioid-induced bowel dysfunction, which includes opioid-induced constipation. And unlike CS side effects with opioids that are typically transient, Opioid-induced constipation and GI side effects typically persist for the entire duration of therapy. Therefore, for our background information today, we will discuss the uniform definition of OIC that is provided by the Rome Foundation called the Rome 4 Diagnostic Criteria. We will also discuss the pathophysiology of OIC, which focuses on mu opioid receptors and the various signaling pathways involved. And finally, we will review the mechanism of action of our Pomora agents or peripherally acting mu opioid receptor antagonists that focus on preventing the binding of opioid agonists in the GI tract. Until 2016 and the efforts by the Rome Foundation to build upon initial proposals, there was no uniform definition of OIC. Therefore, an expert consensus that was multinational 
was created to form the uh, Rome 4 diagnostic criteria, and these experts were in functional GI disorders. Within this diagnostic criteria, a patient must have new or escalating symptoms of constipation when initiating, changing, or increasing opioid therapy, and must include two or more of the following. And for the first five points, this is for 25% of defecations. This includes straining, lumpy or hard stools, cessation of incomplete evacuation, cessation of anorectal obstruction or blockage, and manual maneuvers to facilitate more than 25% of defecations, or a patient may have fewer than three spontaneous bowel movements per week. The second main criteria is that loose stools are rarely present without the use of laxatives. And we'll keep this definition of OIC in mind as we go further throughout the presentation and the primary literature. In order to create novel strategies like our Pomora agents, it was first important to understand the pathophysiology behind opioid-induced constipation. When opioids bind to mu opioid receptors in the enteric nervous system, which includes the GI tract, it leads to inhibition of both excitatory motor neurons and secretomotor neurons. Therefore, let's take a closer look at each of these neuronal pathways. As I mentioned, opioids bind to mu opioid receptors. This includes three different types overall of G-protein coupled receptors, including mu, delta, and kappa. These G-protein coupled receptors have both G-protein dependent and independent signaling. And when an opioid binds to these mu opioid receptors, for the excrete, or excitatory motor neuron in particular, this leads to a decrease in several neurotransmitters. This includes a decrease in acetylcholine and substance P, which is a type of tachykinin that can induce a rapid contraction of GI tissue. And when these are decreased, this leads to a reduction in GI motility, increased transit time throughout the intestinal lumen, and an increase in the sphincter tone. All of these can lead to opioid-induced constipation. Now, if we look at the same image, but for the secretomotor neuron, this, when an opioid binds to a mu opioid receptor, this leads to a, vaso, a decrease in vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. It also leads to a decrease in pituitary adenylate cyclase activating polypeptide, and again, substance P and acetylcholine. Altogether, these again decrease GI motility, increase the transit time, and also reduce intestinal secretion, all of which can lead to opioid-induced constipation. And that brings us to our first assessment question for today. You can join us by visiting pollev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx to 22333. What is the primary pathophysiological mechanism leading to OIC? A, creation of softer non-solid stools, B, relaxation of the sphincter muscle, C, reduced GI motility and increased transit time, or D, increased intestinal secretion. All right, and I agree with the 100% of votes that we have that it leads to a reduction in the GI motility and increased transit time. Just to go through the other options, A, creation of softer non-solid stools is incorrect because we have the decrease 
and intestinal secretion, which leads to drier, harder stools, which goes hand in hand with D. For B, there is actually an increase in the sphincter tone, not relaxation. Now that we've seen the many mechanisms behind opioid-induced constipation, we will review the mechanisms behind our Pomora agents. First, they deal with gut motility. So here with the image on the left, if I add opioid therapy to the intestinal lumen or enteric nervous system, this leads to a non-propulsive motility and delay of the bolus moving through the intestinal lumen. However, if I show this same image and we add one of our Pomora agents, we displace the opioids from binding to those mu opioid receptors in the enteric nervous system, and we restore the propulsive motility through the GI tract. In addition to gut motility, Pomoras also work on gut secretion. Here on the left, we have opioid therapy binding again in the enteric nervous system, and this leads to a reduction in our intestinal secretion. Overall, this leads to drier, harder stools. On the other hand, if we show this same image and add our Pomora therapy, we have restoration of um, intestinal secretion leading to stool normalization and softer stools. And finally, the last of the third main mechanisms of Pomoras um, deal with sphincter function. So again, with opioid treatment on the left, if we add this, this can lead to sphincter dysfunction, which can result in straining and then the development of hemorrhoids. And finally, if we add Pomoras to this, this displaces the opioids and restores our sphincter function. So now that we've seen how the Pomora agents work, we'll dive into our first Pomora agent, methylnaltrexone. Owing to its high polarity and low lipid solubility, methylnaltrexone has restricted ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, limiting its effect on centrally mediated analgesia. Methylnaltrexone is unique among the Pomora agents because it is the only Pomora that is available as a sub-Q formulation in addition to its oral tablets. As for methylnaltrexone's indications, these include opioid-induced constipation, and then its subcutaneous formulation is also indicated for OIC in patients with advanced illness who are receiving palliative care and laxative therapy has not been sufficient for them. And finally, methylnaltrexone is contraindicated in patients with mechanical GI bowel obstructions or for patients at risk for recurrent obstruction. We will now dive into the literature for methylnaltrexone, safety and efficacy. Throughout literature in the past, the subcutaneous formulation and use in advanced illness has been well established. However, in recent years, there has been data that has emerged for a broader population. Therefore, we will discuss the first study to assess the use of methylnaltrexone as a subcutaneous formulation in patients with chronic non-cancer pain. This study was a phase three, double-blind, randomized placebo-controlled study in over 400 patients. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one -one -one fashion to methylnaltrexone 12 milligrams daily, every other day, or sub-Q placebo. Patients were followed for four weeks and could then open or enter an 
open label eight week period with as needed dosing. Patients were included in this study if they were at least 18 years old with OIC, if they had non-malignant chronic pain for at least two months, if they had less than three rescue-free bowel movements per week, meaning they were not using laxatives to achieve these bowel movements, and if they had opioid use for at least one month with an average daily dose of more than 50 morphine milligram equivalents for at least two weeks. Here on the right, you can see the exclusion criteria for this study, which included a history of inflammatory bowel disease, evidence of bowel obstruction or impaction, if they had rectal bleeding from things like hemorrhoids, a history of malignancy in the past five years, or a history of chronic constipation before even starting opioid therapy. And the primary endpoint for this study was rescue-free bowel movement within four hours of the first dose and the percentage of active injections per patient resulting in that rescue-free bowel movement within four hours. So if we look at the first primary endpoint here, um, methylnaltrexone had a statistically significant increase um, or significant increase compared to placebo by achieving rescue-free bowel movements in 34.2% of the time and a number needed to treat of four. As for the percent of active injections per patient resulting in a rescue-free bowel movement within four hours of a dose, both methylnaltrexone dose daily and every other day was statistically significant compared to placebo. And here, if we look at this graph, this is the change in weekly rescue-free bowel movements from baseline and shows across each of the weeks as well. Here, methylnaltrexone daily dosing represented in the dark blue had an average of 3.1 for the change in rescue-free bowel movements. Every other day dosing had an average change of 2.1 and placebo of 1.5. We can also see across all periods of time that methylnaltrexone 12 milligrams daily was statistically significant in all four weeks, while every other day dosing was only in week one and three. However, of note, in these two weeks, they did receive one more injection than weeks two and four. This was also statistically significant. In the eight-week open-label phase to assess durability of these results, similar results were demonstrated showing the durability past the four-week period. And overall, these results expand on our previous effectiveness observed in advanced illness patients to a broader population that now includes patients with chronic non-malignant pain. As you saw with this last study that we just discussed, many of the Pomora agents were originally studied for shorter periods of time. However, there was a long-term clinical study for Elvimopan, another one of the Pomora agents, that raised questioning of the long-term safety of Pomoras. This was a 12-month clinical trial of Elvimopan, which showed a higher incidence of myocardial infarctions. This was not shown in the shorter trials for Elvimopan, and a causal relationship was not established. However, this led to a boxed warning for this particular Pomora and a REMS program. Elvimopan is only indicated for post-op ileus and can be used after partial um, bowel resection, including primary anastomosis. However, 
Elvimopan is actually contraindicated if a patient has received more than seven consecutive days of opioid therapy immediately prior to when Elvimopan would be started. Therefore, Elvimopan is the only Pomora not indicated for OIC. Although it is not indicated, this is still a Pomora agent, and this prompted long-term safety questions of other Pomora agents. As I mentioned previously, the GI side effects of our um, opioid-induced constipation are usually not transient, and they do last the duration of treatment. Therefore, it's really important for us to see if these agents are safe in a long-term sense. Additionally, especially after we saw an increase or a possible increase in MIs with Elvimopan. Therefore, the long-term safety of methylnaltrexone was uh, analyzed with this phase three multi-center open-label study to assess safety and efficacy in over 1,000 patients for a 48-week time period. Patients in this study were included if they were at least 18 years old with chronic non-malignant pain and on opioid therapy with OIC for at least one month. Patients were given methylnaltrexone subcutaneous formulation daily for 48 weeks, but patients could reduce this to a minimum of one injection per week or a maximum of one injection per day. Safety endpoints for this study included measurements of vital signs, blood chemistry, ECG measurements, withdrawal symptoms that were assessed by subjective and objective opioid withdrawal scales, and adverse event reporting. Additionally, they looked at efficacy endpoints throughout these 48 weeks, including things like weekly bowel movement rate, the percent of injections resulting in bowel movements within four hours, the straining scale, the weekly bowel movement Bristol stool scale, which rates a one as hard stools and seven as watery, and the percent of bowel movements with sensation of complete evacuation. The most commonly reported adverse events in this study were abdominal pain, diarrhea, and nausea. Additionally, 10.7% of patients reported having either anxiety, depression, or insomnia. And when looking at cardiac-related adverse events in particular, only nine patients of 1,034 experienced any cardiac event. The authors also conducted a post hoc review to look at each of these nine cardiac events and found that each patient had either multiple cardiac risk factors or an extensive history of cardiac symptoms. And after these patients were treated appropriately, for example, two patients underwent cabbage and one patient underwent stenting, each of those patients actually reinitiated methylnaltrexone. Therefore, it was deemed that these side effects were not related to the study drug. Overall, 15.2% of patients discontinued methylnaltrexone due to an adverse event. These were mostly the abdominal pain, diarrhea, and nausea. This is a representation of the mean number of injections that were used per week because, as I mentioned, they could reduce it to a min of one per week or a max of one per day. The median number of injections was 5.98, and 49.2% of patients required more than six or seven doses per week. 
As for the efficacy endpoints in this study, the authors looked at the mean percent of injections that elicited a bowel movement within four hours. And here, we saw that 34.1% of injections achieved this endpoint. The authors also looked at the mean weekly bowel movement rate from baseline and found that there was a mean of 5.3 bowel movements and a mean change of 1.5 more bowel movements per week. Both of these endpoints were found to be statistically significant. Additionally, the authors looked at the mean bowel movement straining scale score, which was rated as zero for no straining and four for very severe. And they found that there was a mean of 2.3 at baseline compared to a 1.5 during treatment with a mean change of negative 0.9. Finally, looking at the mean bowel movement Bristol stool scale score, it was scored one for separate hard lumps and seven for watery with no solid pieces. Here, there was a mean of 2.5 at baseline and we saw stool normalization with a 3.6 during the treatment. And both of these were also significant compared to placebo. Overall, this study does have a number of limitations, which includes its open label design as all patients knew they were receiving methylnaltrexone, and 77.3% of patients were concurrently taking laxative therapy. Overall, this did show consistent and sustained improvement of OIC throughout the 48-week period. Our next Pomora is naloxagol. And compared to methylnaltrexone, naloxagol is only available as an oral tablet formulation. It is indicated for patients with OIC in adults with non-cancer pain, and this can include patients who have prior cancer as long as their opioid therapy is not frequently escalating. Contraindications for naloxagol include mechanical GI bowel obstruction, and concurrent use with strong CYP3A4 inhibitors, such as ketoconazole or clithromycin, because these can increase the concentrations of naloxagol and lead to more side effects. In order to look at the safety and efficacy of naloxagol, the Kodiak 4 and Kodiak 5 studies were created. These were two identical phase three multi-center randomized double-blind parallel group placebo-controlled studies the Kodiak 4 study involved 652 patients, while Kodiak 5 involved 700 patients. To be included in both of these studies, patients had to be 18 to 84 years old and an outpatient with opioid-induced constipation and non-cancer pain. Patients also needed to be on stable doses of opioids ranging from 30 to 1,000 milligram, morphine milligram equivalents for at least four weeks. And patients were excluded if they did not have those stable doses of opioids, if they had cancer within the five years prior to enrollment, if they had conditions or used meds that, that are associated with diarrhea or constipation, if they had evidence of GI obstruction or conditions that confer an increased risk of bowel perforation. Patients in this study were first stratified during the pre-screen period for response to laxatives. Then after stratification, they were randomized in a one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion to naloxagol 25 milligrams, 12.5 milligrams, or placebo. 
During this study, laxative therapy was not permitted unless the patient did not have a bowel movement within 72 hours after the last recorded bowel movement. And in that case, patients could use up to three doses of bisacodyl, followed by a one-time use of a rescue enema. The primary endpoint for this study was response rate over a 12-week period. This response rate was defined as having three or more spontaneous bowel movements per week and an increase in one or more spontaneous bowel movements over baseline for at least nine of 12 treatment weeks and at least three of the four final treatment weeks. Here, looking at the response rates between each of the groups, we see that naloxagol 12.5 milligrams was only statistically significant in the Kodiak 4 study with a number needed to treat of nine. However, naloxagol 25 milligrams was statistically significant in its response rates compared to placebo in both Kodiak 4 and 5 with numbers needed to treat of 7 and 10. Of note, the authors did not find a reason as to why naloxagol 12.5 milligrams was only statistically significant in one of the studies. However, in clinical practice, we do use the 25 milligram dose, and patients use the 12.5 milligram dose only if 25 is normally not tolerated. Then, as I mentioned, patients were stratified by their laxative response. So here is the subpopulation of patients who had inadequate response to laxatives during that two-week screening period. Here we see the exact same results compared to the overall study population, with naloxagol 25 milligrams significant throughout both studies. Here we see that clinical benefits of naloxagol in patients with OIC and an inadequate response to laxatives were consistent. And this is important to note because in clinical practice, a lot of times our patients are going to try the cheaper options of osmotic um, laxatives or stimulant laxatives before we move on to these pricier agents such as Pomora. So this tells us that if they do fail that cheaper therapy, there are other options available for our patients to combat OIC. In terms of other constipation-related endpoints that were improved with naloxagol, these include time to first spontaneous bowel movement, the mean number of days per week with one or more spontaneous bowel movements, number of weekly spontaneous bowel movements, severity of straining, and stool consistency. As for safety, this was very similar to methyl naltrexone with a higher incidence of AEs in diarrhea, abdominal pain, and nausea and vomiting for the naloxagol groups. However, there were no changes from baseline in vital signs or ECG measurements. Finally, the last Pomora we will discuss today is naldemidine. Naldemidine has an oral formulation similar to naloxagol. And of note, naldemidine was once a C2 agent until 2017. And this is because naldemidine can be made from opioid alkaloids. However, this was removed. Uh, naldemidine also has an additional side chain that increases its polarity and decreases its lipid solubility, again restricting its ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. 
Indications for neldamidine include OIC in patients with non-cancer pain, and again, can include patients who had prior cancer, as long as their doses were not frequently escalating. And contraindications of neldamidine include the mechanical GI bowel obstructions or risk of recurrent obstruction. In order to assess neldamidine safety and efficacy, studies including the COMPOSE-1 and COMPOSE-2 were conducted. These are identical phase three multi-center randomized double-blind parallel placebo-controlled trials, and the COMPOSE-1 study included 547 patients, and COMPOSE-2 included 553 patients. Stu patients were included in this study if they were 18 to 80 years old with chronic non-malignant pain, and if they had opioid therapy for at least three months with stable total daily doses. They were excluded if they were pregnant or lactating, if they had significant structural GI abnormalities, pelvic disorders, or if they had never taken laxatives previously. And when these patients were randomized, they were first stratified by their total daily dose of opioid therapy with 30 to 100 morphine milligram equivalents and greater than 100 morphine milligram equivalents. They were then randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to naldemidine daily or placebo, and patients were followed for a 12-week treatment period and then a four-week follow-up period to assess safety. The primary endpoint for this study was the proportion of responders over the 12-week period, and responders was the exact same definition used in the Kodiak 4 and 5 studies that we already went over. Looking at the proportion of responders by treatment group, we see that the proportion of responders was significantly higher in the naldemidine group. And if we compare, the COMPOSE-1 had a 13% difference compared to placebo, and COMPOSE-2 had an 18.9% difference compared to placebo. Looking at the change in frequency of spontaneous bowel movements per week from baseline to the first week of treatment, we also saw a statistically significant difference for naldemidine compared to placebo in both of these studies. And then looking at the change in frequency of spontaneous bowel movements from baseline to the last two weeks of treatment, this was sustained with a statistically significant difference in both studies for the naldemidine group. Overall, the secondary efficacy endpoints did demonstrate sustained efficacy throughout the treatment period. And in regards to safety, abdominal pain was higher in the, or abdominal pain was higher in the naldemidine group compared to placebo, and diarrhea was also higher in the naldemidine group compared to placebo. Overall, naldemidine led to a significantly higher responder rate compared to placebo and was generally well tolerated. In order to look at a longer-term period of time for naldemidine, COMPOSE-3 was then um, created as a Phase 3 double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study in over 1,000 patients for a 52-week period. These patients were, again, 18 to 80 years old with OIC, had non-malignant chronic pain for at least three months, had the stable total daily doses of opioid therapy for at least a month before screening, and then routine laxative regimens were allowed in this study, but not required of patients. Patients were excluded if they had structural abnormalities or medical conditions that may contribute to their constipation. 
Patients were again stratified by their total daily dose of opioids and then randomized to naldemidine daily or placebo for 52 weeks. The primary endpoint within this study was the summary measures of treatment emergent adverse events. And a treat or an adverse event was deemed to be treatment emergent if it happened after the first dose of naldemidine or 14 days after the last dose. These summary measures included incidences of treatment emergent adverse events, serious treatment emergent adverse events, and those that led to study discontinuation. If we look at the treatment emergent adverse events, we see that there was no significant difference between naldemidine and placebo. However, looking at the GI disorders in particular, naldemidine did have a higher percentage of GI disorders compared to placebo, and this was a significant difference. As for the treatment emergent adverse events causing discontinuation, there was no difference between groups that was significant, including those for GI disorders. And this was the same for serious treatment emergent adverse events with no difference noted between the groups. And because I mentioned GI side effects were significantly higher in the naldemidine group, this is a closer look at those particular GI side effects. Here in this table, we see that abdominal pain and diarrhea were significantly higher in the naldemidine group, but nausea and vomiting did not have a significant difference. And because I mentioned the cardiac events that were worrisome with Elvimopan, they also looked at major adverse cardiac events and found no significant difference between groups. And also for treatment emergent adverse events of opioid withdrawal, there was no difference noted between the groups. This study also looked at efficacy of naldemidine, and this is the change from baseline in bowel movement frequency. Naldemidine is represented in red with placebo in yellow. And of note, at baseline, both were at a rate of 2.02 bowel movements per week. So here we can see across the entire 52-week period, there was a significant increase in bowel movements for the naldemidine group. And among those taking laxatives throughout this study, the proportion that required rescue laxatives was 8% in the naldemidine group and 14% in the placebo group. This was the first study to investigate the utility of Pomoras over a 52-week period as a placebo-controlled trial. And as we talked about the methylnaltrexone extended study, this was 48 weeks, but an open-label study. Study discontinuations owing to treatment emergent adverse events were low and similar between study groups. And long-term naldemidine elicited significant and durable improvements in frequency of bowel movements, constipation-related symptoms, and quality of life. And this brings us to our second assessment question. So which of the following were consistently demonstrated throughout the Pomora studies discussed? A, Pomoras are efficacious for up to a max of 12 months or 12 weeks. Cardiac adverse events were significantly increased with Pomora agents indicated for OIC. C, laxatives are equally efficacious for OIC as they treat the underlying pathophysiological mechanism. Or D, Pomoras reduce OIC without reducing pain relief or causing opioid withdrawal. All right, and I agree with the majority here. Pomoras do reduce OIC without reducing pain relief or causing opioid withdrawal. As for A, 
They are not efficacious for only up to 12 weeks. As we saw, neldemidine in particular is efficacious up to at least 52 weeks. Cardiac adverse events were significantly increased. That is incorrect, as this was just noted in the Elvimopan study. And laxatives do not equally uh, treat OIC, as they are not getting at the root cause causing this OIC. So overall, for the studies that we discussed, short and long-term treatment has been shown to be safe and efficacious. Most um, common adverse events in these studies included abdominal pain and diarrhea, and there was no meaningful impact on assessments of opioid withdrawal or pain intensity. And finally, Pomoras do address the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms of OIC, unlike our laxative agents. For our third assessment question, we have a 53-year-old male on long-term opioid therapy for chronic lower back pain complaining of laxative refractory OIC for the past month. Which of the following would you assess before starting a Pomora? A, liver function, B, use of laxative agents, C, concurrent medications, D, renal function, or E, all of the above? All right, it looks like we have some votes for use of laxative agents and all of the above. And across the next two slides, we'll go through a number of clinical pearls that will demonstrate why each of these are important, including the use of laxative agents and the other factors. Here is a table representing a number of clinical pearls for each of the Pomora agents we discussed today. Methyl naltrexone is the only Pomora that has the additional indication of OIC in adults with advanced illness. For dosing, methyl naltrexone should be dosed on a weight-based method for the subcutaneous formulation if it is in patients with advanced illness. For naloxagol, as I had mentioned, if the 25 milligram dose is not tolerated, patients may trial the 12.5 milligrams. As for additional pearls, methyl naltrexone should have, or you should have caution in patients with hepatic impairment. And if a patient has a creatinine clearance of less than 60 milliliters per minute, there is dose requirement or adjusting. For naloxagol, a patient should not take concurrent CYP3A4 inhibitors such as ketoconazole and clarithromycin. And you should avoid the use in severe hepatic impairment patients. Again, naloxagol does have to be dose-adjusted in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 60. And specifically for naloxagol, it is mentioned that all maintenance laxative therapy should be discontinued prior to use. This is how the studies looked at naloxagol as well. And if it is deemed that naloxagol is not sufficient enough to treat OIC, patients may reintroduce laxative therapy after three days of naloxagol. And for naldemidine, it should also be avoided in use with severe hepatic impairment. However, this of the three Pomora agents is the only one that does not require renal dose adjustments. In regards to timing with meals, methyl naltrexone should be administered on an empty stomach. And this is because if you give naldemidine with a high um, fat meal, the first time to peak can be delayed by two hours. Um, and then for naloxagol, this should also be taken on an empty stomach because in studies it has been shown that with a high-fat meal, 
the CMAX may increase by 30% and the AUC or area under the curve may increase by 45%. Neldemidine is the only Pomora discussed today that can be administered without regard to meals. And looking at the cost, here I have the average wholesale price estimation listed. And we can see that the methylnaltrexone subcutaneous formulation is our most expensive option. And it also is the most expensive tablet formulation. Naloxagol and naldemidine are pretty similar in their price of $14 to $15. And I would also like to share the American Gastroenterological Association guideline recommendations for each of these Pomora agents. For methylnaltrexone, they give a conditional recommendation for use based on low quality of evidence. For naloxagol, a strong recommendation based on moderate quality of evidence. And neldemidine, a strong recommendation based on a higher quality of evidence. Overall, these are a number of clinical pearls that pharmacists and other healthcare providers should keep in mind in order to ensure that we um, choose the most effective Pomora for our patients and dose them appropriately. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.